0: Judith Wolfe spoke at the Abbey Summer School about the two contrasting understandings of the work of Christ. She pointed out that the Protestant tradition emphasised restoration and redemption, whereas the Eastern Church concentrates on deification, becoming more like Christ. One of the
1: central questions of Christian theology is, what do Jesus's death and resurrection mean for mankind? The traditional Western response is restoration. Particularly in the Lutheran church and uh, the reformed churches, Jesus's death is regarded as such an enormous sacrifice that it must imply a correspondingly cataclysmic failing, which it was necessary to redeem. In other words, if on our perspective, we look at the magnitude of what Christ has done through his death, then we must assume, for the Western view, we must assume that that magnitude was there in order to match the magnitude of the fall that came before it, only because we are so fallen that Christ have to commit such a large sacrifice in order to, attain, uh, to, um, <clears throat> uh, to redeem us. Um, Consequently, Lutheranism, um, Protestantism, and Western theology more generally tend to regard the history of man as one of prelapsarian perfection lost through a cataclysmic fall into sin. And this sin passed on from Adam to each subsequent generation was then redeemed by the death of God's son who restored man, at least potentially, to the original purity enjoyed by Adam. The traditional Eastern response, on the other hand, is deification. On this view, Man was not, or humans were not finished at their creation. Although enjoying a certain measure of perfection, they remained incomplete, destined as Aquinas also wrote, for an end that they could not themselves achieve, namely a transcendence of mere individuality towards communion with God. The purpose of the incarnation on this view is not so much or not merely to redeem what has been lost, to restore what was had already been had, But rather to make possible what had not yet been attained, by joining the human to the divine nature and thereby overcoming the ultimate isolation of death, um, and the uh, ultimate end of death. Uh, So, in other words, the shape of history is not one of a sort of V shape, but rather one of a fall, certainly, and a restoration, certainly, Um, but above all of an incomplete creation that is yet to be completed and whose completion was enabled and begun um, by the incarnation, death and resurrection of Christ. This is beautifully expressed, of course, as we know in 1 Corinthians 15, um, from from which in a sense our our reading this morning is a distant follow-on. You do not sow the body that is to be but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. So it is with the resurrection of the dead what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven.
2: And we'll come back to Judith Wolfe in a few minutes. That'll be after we hear the Scottish festival singers and immortal, invisible, God-only wise. And that was recorded in St. Cuthbert's Church in Lothian Road, Edinburgh. Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise was its title and it was sung by the Scottish festival singers. Now, let's get back to the Abbey Summer School and to Judith Wolfe.
1: The idea of deification then, of being joined to Christ and with him into the Trinitarian life uh, as a whole, means that creation is not yet finished. Humans are not yet what they're ultimately destined to be. This comes out I think again and again in Lewis's writings. It, it motivates a lot of the drive of his stories and of his um, apologetic books. The most famous bit is from the last book of uh, the Narnia Chronicles, The Last Battle. I won't read all of this but I'll skip to the last paragraph here. The eagle is right, this is when, they, when they've entered um, and run through the, the, the first valleys and mountains of the new Narnia. Listen, Peter. When Aslan said you could not come back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been there and always will be there, just as our world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different, as different as real things are from shadows or as waking life is from a dream. His voice stirred everyone like a trumpet as he spoke these words, but when he added under his breath, but then he added under his breath, it's all in Plato, all in Plato, bless me, what do they teach them at these schools? Now, it's true that Lewis took much of this from Plato um, and more so I think at the end of the Narnia Chronicles than in other writings. Uh, In Plato's Phaedrus, the soul, as you know, is a winged chariot that gazes on the true forms of things beyond the rim of the world. And the difference um, and the the vocation of the soul is to to grow its wings again and to rise up again and once more see, see the forms that are outside the realm of the world. But the difference is that reality for Lewis is not like Plato's forms, ultimately impersonal. Plato's forms are a realm that's different entirely from the human realm. It's an abstract eternal realm in which in a sense, we have no place. We can gaze upon the forms, we can orient ourselves towards them, but we don't as human individuals have a place in the realm of forms. Whereas for Lewis, the ultimate reality is something that is something we can inhabit because ultimate reality, God, God's dwelling are personal. So for Lewis, desire is the fundamental human capacity. It is the mark of a humanity that is unfinished and longs for completion. And heaven, as he thinks, is that fulfillment. And you know that famous quote from the problem of pain from the last chapter, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering if we have ever desired anything else. All the things that have deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of it tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. But if it should really become manifest, if there ever came an echo that did not die away but swelled into the sound itself, you would know it. Beyond all possibility of doubt, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and inappeasable want the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. While we are this is, if we lose this, we lose all. Now Lewis is worried as you know that in our busy bustling day-to-day life we will forget this desire and the point of his literature is to rekindle it To give us images like that of the real Narnia, which remind us that we are not yet finished.
3: What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love. My deep and boundless peace To this I hold My hope is only Jesus For my life is wholly bound to His Oh how strange and divine I can see All is mine Yet not I But through Christ Dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need, his power is displayed. To this I. Christ, it has been made for. Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and He was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hope my sin has been defeated. Jesus, now and ever, is my plea. The chains are released, I can sing I am free, and not I, but through Christ in me. With every breath, I want to follow Jesus. My lips shall redeem, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ.
2: coming up, we'll be hearing from Malcolm Gite. It's his reflection on Psalm 40. So I thought it would be good if we listened to Jenny MacLeod and the metrical version of Psalm 40.
4: I waited for the Lord my God and care doth take. Thou art my help and savior, my God, no tiring me.
0: Malcolm Gite has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear his thoughts on Psalm 40. It's followed by John Taverner's Mother of God, Here I Stand, played by the Bruneau State Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Mikel Toms. A response to Psalm 40. The stone itself will soon be rolled away.
3: I wait in patience, all expectantly, firm on this rock above the miry clay, where he has set me in his loving mercy. I sing my psalm in Christ who sings in me, a new song made in his love's mystery. Your wondrous works all rise like wings in me and lift my heart to praise. I hear your call, the simple call of love. Oh, come to me, bring me no gifts, for I have made them all. Just bring yourself and open up your heart. And so I come to you and bring you all, all that I am and have been joy and hurt, glory and shame, I bring you everything that you might make me whole in every part.
0: Sorensen is a regular contributor to Pause for Thought on Radio 2. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his Godspots, and today he has one on long-distance prayer.
5: It was about the most disconcerting phone call I'd had in a long time. A friend phoned me up while they were on holiday in Greece. they just got into a local phone box, stuck in a phone card and dialled me up. They sounded like they were just round the corner. It takes all of the mystique out of being halfway around the world, you know. It used to be that you would have five different operators trying to connect you. You would have to shout, Are you hearing me? And then two armed guards would turn up to collect the payment. I mean, where's the novelty gone? It's just too easy. And I'll bet that's the way folk felt when Jesus taught them how to pray. He said, You just talk to God. Call him Dad. No sacrifices. No sackcloth. No intermediaries. And therefore, no excuses. Try it. The line's clear. Immediate blessings to you. doodle oo
2: Alan Sorensen with a quick thought there on prayer. Uh, here's Helen Shapiro. A prayer song, this is, and it's called Father in Heaven.
6: You're oh my girl.
0: Gentis has produced a series of talks for us, where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today, he continues the story of Joseph.
5: Your Honour, the designated scribe has arrived. Oh good, show him in. Do come in, we'll go into my private chambers for the rest of my story. Where were we? Oh yes, Potiphar, Pharaoh's guard, sent me to prison when his wife lied about me. Off the record, don't you find it amusing that I'm now above him and he's still got that wife to contend with? (laughs) We'll leave that one. Don't, Don't write that. So, there I was in prison for many years, and the jailers observed that when I did something, it simply worked. Just as Potiphar put me in charge of his household, the prison guards did the same thing, putting me in charge of everything, and I was even free to worship God and tell others about him. The only thing I didn't have was something I earnestly desired, my freedom. One day, two new prisoners were brought in from Pharaoh's court, a baker and a cupbearer. After many months, both these men had dreams that disturbed them. I asked them what the problem was, and they told me their dreams. I told them that God would tell them the meaning of their dreams. Well, here they were. The cupbearer's dream was about a vine with three branches that budded and produced ripe grapes. Then he squeezed the grapes into Pharaoh's cup and put it into his hand to drink. God's interpretation was that this cup-bearer would be freed from prison in three days and restored to his responsibilities as cupbearer. I asked him to keep me in mind by mentioning me to Pharaoh in the chance that he could get me out of this prison. And the baker's dream was quite different, He saw three baskets of white bread on top of his head. And on top of the bread were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh. Uh, But the birds were eating them out of the basket. Well, God showed me that in three days, the baker would be taken out of the prison and executed by hanging. Both dreams happened just as the Lord said they would regarding both the cupbearer and the baker. You remember I asked the cupbearer to mention me to Pharaoh. Well, he forgot all about me and his promise, so I remain in prison. Then, Pharaoh himself had two disturbing dreams. In one, there were seven healthy cows on the bank of the Nile River, grazing happily. Afterward, along came seven sickly cows and devoured the healthy ones. He wondered what this dream meant, but this time he went back to sleep. He had another dream, this time with stalks of corn. There were seven plump ones, and then came seven thin stalks that were scorched by the hot summer wind, and they swallowed up the seven healthy ones. Pharaoh asked all his wise men and magicians the interpretation of these dreams, but none of them had a clue. Suddenly, Pharaoh's cupbearer remembered me. He related the story of how I had interpreted the dreams of both himself and the baker, and everything happened exactly as I said. Pharaoh summoned me to present myself before him, after a bit of clean-up, of course. When Pharaoh related his dreams, I told him that God was going to interpret them, and that both dreams were one and the same. Here was the meaning of his dreams— The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold. Seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. I then told Pharaoh that he must choose a wise man to oversee stocking the royal granaries during the seven years of plenty, because the famine would be so severe that the years of plenty would even be forgotten. And God showed me that a fifth of all harvests should be stored during these years to feed the nation, during the years of the famine, and overseers appointed to collect these harvests. And now, well, that's where I am now. Pharaoh chose me to be second in command to the empire of mighty Egypt. I must take leave of you now. There are meetings and I wouldn't want them left to others. After all, the coat uh, that I wear brings with it many responsibilities. And although the bright colors are missing, well, it's God that put it on me. We'll see you one more time next week. And if you think the stories are finished, you're wrong. The best part is yet to come.